Coming up on today's show, classes are set to resume next week. Maybe. We don't know. No word from the province yet. It's been a year from hell for healthcare workers in our province and around the world. We're going to chat with a frontline worker in about 2021 and just how tough it's been. And we'll also find out the very latest on the Omicron virus. Kids are supposed to return to school next week. Okay, right after the long weekend. So Tuesday, the 3rd. And the question now is, will they? Or because of what we're seeing with soaring case counts with Omicron, will there be a decision to keep them out of school, keep some of them out of school? Uh, We don't know. And some clarity obviously would be beneficial for teachers and for parents and for kids, right? Um, uh, So hopefully we find that out today. But in the meantime, we can talk about what we would like to see or what we expect to see based on what we're seeing in other jurisdictions. And joining us for that discussion is Wing Lee, who is Communications Director of Support Our Students Alberta. Uh, Wing, thanks so much for joining us again. Always nice to chat. How are you? Hi, I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me again. Um, yeah, it's it's great to have you. Um, so I guess we're all sort of watching and waiting, right? And just trying to read the tea leaves, I guess, without a lot of certainty. Is that where we're all sitting right now to this morning? <laughs> There's a lot of speculation for sure. Uh, no confirmations yet. And if anything, it's just really adding to the stress, yeah. right, of not knowing how you're going to turn on a dime this weekend uh, as families have to prepare. They have jobs, too. Uh, they're not just waiting, you know, uh, to see. They need to make preparations. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The, I mean, every minute counts in a, in a situation like this. So I'm assuming mm-hmm. we'll hear from the provincial government today. Um, what do you... Th- is there an ideal solution here? Is there a way to do this that would please everybody? I don't think there is, but to please a lot of people, what would be the ideal solution here? So I don't think that, I think we're past that point of having any ideal solutions because of the context, right? So we're waking up really to January 2021. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds grim, but it does feel that way because we didn't have any long-term solutions. You know, these knee-jerk reactions of delays aren't accompanied by any infrastructure upgrades uh, to maintain in-person learning. So I think the fear is just how many more times can we do this? Even if it is a short-term delay, what are they doing in the meantime to mitigate these continual closures and delays and popping back and forth online and offline? I think you make a good point. And I I mean, in terms of a long-term lasting solution, um, that ship has sailed, at least for this this weekend, obviously, right? Uh, a missed opportunity, perhaps. But when you take a look at what's happening in BC, where they've announced that they will stagger the return to school and students of essential workers, um, you know, children of essential workers, will go back to school on Tuesday. Others will wait for a week. Uh, special needs students will go back next week. Others will wait. Um, is that kind of approach something you think might apply well here in Alberta? Yeah, and, and once again, you know, that is a short-term solution, but yep. we haven't actually seen anything like that uh, to, in that detail here, so it would be good to have any sort of plan. Staggered approach, whether it's maintaining smaller class sizes for the first uh, month uh, with, you know, uh, teams of students um, in and out. Something, any creative solution would be good because we just haven't seen any of that in this province um, to that degree. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to the best way to go about this and the best way to make sure that we can uh, keep kids in school. And we know that's sort of the overriding goal of everybody that's involved. Mm -hmm. And we know how important that is Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of 
testing and, you know, asymptomatic. I mean, we're hearing from school boards that with the testing programs that we're putting in place with teachers and administrators, they may not be able to open the school anyway. Um, I mean, how, how sustainable do you think the situation that we're in is? And do we need to change the way that we're doing all of this when it comes to testing and asymptomatic students? I think we, what we saw in the fall was scaling back, actually, because they stopped the contact tracing for school. Yeah. It was voluntary. So I think we do need targeted measures to uphold schools opening. I think the community needs to come together and say, hey, if we're all agreeing that schools are essential, which I think we are, we, we know the effects of school closures, let's keep them open. Let's do our best to pool our resources and focus on how we can get quick testing uh, and having um, tracing so that only those pockets that are affected uh, can act and change their behavior for a short time so that we don't see mass closures. Uh, we, we're, what we're seeing actually scaling back um, because of no PCR testing for yeah. uh, schools anymore. So why don't we just bring that back for the schools? Um, and we did pull our public health staff to help the education system um, because we need to back up our words with our actions, right? We're all saying... Let's rally around schools, keep them open. Then we need the funding, too, from the province uh, and government buy-in as well as community buy-in that we all need to do our part to keep schools open. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's the, the underlying message that we all have to try and buy in and do everything that's possible. The question is what that's going to look like. Um, when it comes down to a situation where if we get to the point where, you know, we've got this many staff or this many students testing positive, and then we get into a situation where some cool schools were closing, and we've seen this before, uh, you know this, mm-hmm. some schools mm-hmm. said, we, we can't keep going, we need to shut down for a week, two weeks, whatever the case may be, and then we'll start up again, and it's sort of a patchwork, and some schools are in, mm-hmm. and some are out, and they're closing at the drop of a hat. Is it better to have some stability a month at a time coming from the province, or is it better to react to what's happening on the ground in real time? It's always better to plan ahead. Yeah. Uh, what we know that is that is uh, the immediate notices that you're out of school for two weeks is quite detrimental. When you get that note that day and you're just gone, yeah. it can be uh, collectively too now, right? The cumulative impact is different uh, and more. It's it's really built up. So it's always good to have the long-term uh, plan in place of a protocol of, okay, when we see this, how are we going to mitigate not just the strain of the immediate reaction, but do we have a contingency plan uh, of having, you know, alternate uh, staffing schedule or are we doing, you know, some sort of hybrid situation so that it can be predicted. I think the patchwork comes when it's so uh, immediate and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. When no. Omicron gets in the schools, it will rip through the schools. That's, that's how transmissible this, this variant is. We need to plan ahead, and we've just really never done that. So maybe this time around we can try to see how previous um, moving online has impacted students and, and changed some of these short-term knee-jerk reactions. Okay, so when we talk about planning ahead, and like you say, I think we're all under the expectation uh, with some certainty that Omicron is going to tear through the school system just like it has through the rest of the community. Um, when you're mm-hmm. talking about building in some certainty, do you mean benchmarks? Do you mean um, trigger points? What exactly yep. would that look like? How do you have certainty around this situation? Yeah, something that the public can uh, monitor. So right now we don't even have data. We don't actually have posted current numbers, and that's creating a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. So baseline, at least publish uh, real-time reports 
And that was also taken away in the fall for schools, right? So we didn't have school-wide notification for many jurisdictions because of that voluntary notification. And in many ways, not having that was more, you know, put more families in the dark. So for one, it's the reporting need to come back. For second, yes, the indicators having some type of window or interval that's quantified that, okay, a positivity rate is this, you know, this much for this jurisdiction, then expect that if it climbs, expect and prepare for uh, a transition, a scenario change. And that even would help a bit. We've never had that. Uh, And they know, they have modeling and they know kind of what they're gauging on on the government front. So let that be known to the public and not just waiting for a cluster at 3.30 on a Thursday, right? Um, That needs to change. I think they need to just be much more transparent with the public moving forward. Yeah, it's uh, it, we'll we'll see. Hopefully, we get some clarity today, Wing. I think we're all watching and waiting to see exactly what's yes. going to happen, and uh, and we'll go from there. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, and uh, take care. Yeah, you bet. That's uh, Wing Lee, who is uh, the communications director of Support Our Students Alberta, and like like uh, so many families in our province today, watching and waiting and trying to you know, read the tea leaves and uh, look into the crystal ball as to what's going to happen on Tuesday. Um, let's talk about the year that was in terms of Alberta's healthcare system. And we know it was one hell of a year. What will 2020 be like? We'll find out about that too. We're going to chat with Dr. Shazma Mathani, who is an ER doc at the Royal Alec in Edmonton, has been a frequent resource for us here on the show. Um, doc, thanks so much for your time once again. I hope you're getting some sort of reprieve, some sort of break over this holiday period, are you? Um, sort of. <laughs> I had a few days off. I had a few days off over the holidays, so um, I, I took what I could get. Let's say that. I'm wondering how the hospitals are because, I mean, I know that Quebec made the difficult decision to say asymptomatic positive cases. We need you to go back to work. Are you seeing a situation where a lot of your colleagues and uh, support staff are, are starting to test positive and, and can't show up to work their shifts? Uh, definitely, yes. So not only in the eMERGE, but in other parts of the hospital, I have... Um, lots of colleagues who work outside of the eMERGE and are noticing the same thing, um, that uh, healthcare staff are starting to test positive. I mean, there were, of course, um, likely an increase in contacts over the holidays, and uh, which likely which did lead, we know, to an increase in yeah. spread of, um, of Omicron. So, yes, yes, we are seeing it, and, and it is um, certainly something I'm watching anxiously because if there is even a little blip in hospitalizations, we're going to feel the effect of that quite significantly uh, with the staffing shortages that we're likely going to face. Well, that's the issue, right? I mean, we keep talking about, oh, it's not as severe, it's not as bad, there's not as many hospitalizations. couple of things there, and tell me if I'm wrong. ICUs are already maxed. They're already under tremendous stress. You've got staff that are testing positive, just like everybody else in the community, to an extraordinary extent. So it doesn't necessarily need to be the same level of hospitalizations to cause the same level of stress this time around, right? Well, that's absolutely right. And there's there's two reasons for that, right? And so um, talking about the data that you just mentioned out of Ontario, so even if hospitalizations are 50-ish percent less, yeah. if we're seeing... A huge increase in transmission. Yeah. Um, so, like, 
thousands and thousands of cases a day, right? We've now surpassed our daily cases and then some, like our previous record. And we're not even testing um, close to the number and we're that's not, truly and out we're, there. Exactly. We're not even, it's probably like anywhere three to four times the numbers that are being reported is what what's actually happening. And so if we're having, let's say, 10,000 cases a day, and even like... 0.5% of those people need hospitalization, that's going to be a big problem quite quickly. And that would be, let's say, if we were even functioning at the levels of the fourth wave where we had um, mostly full staff, right, as, as full of staff as we were probably going to be able to get, um, that would be a stress at that time. Uh, but now we're in the context of starting to see staffing shortages on mm-hmm. top of that. I think we're, I'm very worried that it's going to become a problem. I mean, yes, it is milder. That's great, but we are not out of hot water. There still is um, a big potential for stress on the healthcare system with this because of the factors that I just mentioned and that you just, just discussed as well. Yeah, it's just math. It's just math. So uh, fingers crossed. But like you say, it's certainly not reason to celebrate here. Let's go back to a year ago when uh, vaccines were just starting to happen and we were seeing some, and there was this great joy around the community and I know healthcare workers were some of the first to get vaccinated and we were also optimistic and also positive just what was it like you know um, heading into the very beginning of 2021 with vaccines rolling out and the optimism that we'd seen what was it like in January of last year oh it was completely the opposite of how I'm feeling now if I'm being honest I mean looking back a year ago around around the holidays I mean all of us all of us healthcare workers that were kind of on the front lines near the end of December there, we were just waiting by our phones, knowing that we could have, we were going to get a phone call at any moment. Like I did not, I did not let my phone leave my side over, over kind of the holiday time because I was just waiting for that phone call. And I remember I got my first dose on January 3rd. And so it was like the best new year's present ever um, to be able to get that. And, And there was certainly a lot of hope and optimism, not only among healthcare workers, but I think just among the general public that this was finally going to be, our way out of this yeah. mess and um you know it's so hard to remember what that felt like because so much has happened in the last year that has unfortunately um not made that a reality that optimism kind of turned into um multiple ways and um you know in my opinion uh poor policy decisions and it got us a year later to where we are today facing a fifth wave now a year later, and that's the thing, and we, and we were all on board with the vaccines. Those of us who were, you know, on, in that side of the equation, we were all like, okay, here we go. This is the way out. That's what we've been told, and we were all so excited about it. And I still think they are, and I think, you know, we may, that ultimately, that's, that's the key to all of this. But over the course of the year, how much has it changed in terms of the way the hospital deals with these situations on a day-to-day basis, you know, aside from the intense waves? Um, is there more of a protocol, more of an understanding, more of a, a treatment regimen that you follow with COVID cases now? So I would say that even uh, almost two years ago now, right? Like, so if we go back yeah. to March of 2020, um, when we, when, you know, the first cases got reported here in Canada and in Alberta, um, We've learned a lot since then, but in the last year, I would say that the protocols have been fairly similar. So we we are essentially treating everybody that walks in the door like they have COVID. We are putting on our PPE for every patient. The one thing that has changed, thankfully, in the last couple of weeks, that um, there has been finally an acknowledgement that COVID is airborne mm-hmm. and that the PPE has been upgraded in the hospital or the recommendations have been upgraded for healthcare workers to wear N95 masks. Um, so that's the, really the biggest protocol change. Otherwise, we, it, we're, we're like a well-oiled machine. Like we know, yeah. you know exactly how to don our PP, exactly how to doff it. Um, you know the the treatment uh, the treatment regimens are are um, 
uh, pretty well established and um, it's uh it's something that we're pretty used to now, I would say. Um, we keep talking about tools in the toolbox to deal with this, and it's your toolbox, frankly, that we're talking about. So I'm wondering, you know, with the monoclonal antibodies, and I know some people, like making that determination in terms of who's uh, a good patient for that, and also these new treatments, these um, these pills that we know have now been approved, you know, when these tools get added, how do they get incorporated and how... How much better do you feel about dealing with what you have to deal with every day when this kind of thing happens? Um, there's certainly, I mean, it's certainly um, promising, right? These new, the monoclonal antibodies, the new antiviral treatments um, are promising. There's lots of, like, there are quite specific criteria that have to be met in order to be eligible for them. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's the problem of, or, or the potential concern of supply, right? And so we've seen that kind of throughout the pandemic in terms of, um, supply of certain uh, antiviral agents, for example, and so if if um, this is a uh, if you know knowing that these are effective treatments that um, that are newer, often supply is an issue, and so uh, I'm optimistic and, and happy to see them. But it's again, you know, it's it's a tool in the toolbox. Nothing is a silver bullet. Yeah. Everything has to be kind of approached in a, in a multifactorial manner to help to um, mitigate the spread and then of course treat it if if um if people do get covid you know doc sometimes i'll just have a moment where i'm sitting here thinking you know take a look at the last two years this is so bizarre this is so surreal like how can this you know this will be something that's stood out you know in history a hundred years from now we'll talk about this um to be going through it as a doctor on the front lines um the frustration we feel that whole discombobulated feeling that we get sometimes nothing makes sense anymore how difficult personally has it been for you to try and do what you do in the face of this totally extraordinary circumstance uh yeah i mean you know it's interesting that you asked because i've been reflecting on that in particular over the last couple of days and um it is surreal but it also just feels really isolating i would have to say as a health worker i mean um i know it's kind of an odd choice of word to use in the context of covid but it's, it's really, I'm finding, I, I find it really hard to connect with my, my friends and family who are not healthcare workers right now, because there's just no way for people who, who don't face it every day to even begin to grasp or understand what the last year and a half has been like, even the last six months, let's say, right? Because that, that fourth wave was just devastating, it was absolutely devastating for for civilians, um, for healthcare workers, and you know, I used to say, and I think I've said this to you as well. I just wish that I could bring people inside the hospital yeah. to see what we what we face every day. I wish that someone could get inside my head and like hear my my thought process all the time of that. It's not just like I don't just think about COVID at work. I think about COVID all the time and whatever, like what sort of things. Um, you know, I can do to to advocate to keep people safe, and it's like a constant weight, um, and it's really hard to for us for to to even help people understand what that's like, and and sometimes it can feel pretty isolating, and and you know, I just we always kind of think I think it's healthcare workers, um, especially the ones on the front lines in particular that are seeing COVID all the time or, or are during the waves, but you know, we just have to get past this wave, and then it'll be okay. We just have to get past yeah. this like little this blip, and it'll be okay. And it just there's still no end in sight right now, and it just um, it's it's definitely been challenging to to manage that and and have no um, clear end in sight of of when this is going to go back to normal. 
I think that's when I was talking about that moment, it's kind of like, how long can this go on? I mean, is this, is this the way it's going to be? I mean, uh, so you're having those same kind of thoughts. Um, I can't imagine going into work and doing what you do every day without, you know what I mean? Doing a job, there's a goal and this is when it's going to end. And this is what I have to do to make this end. Um, do you really think this, I mean, there's gotta be some optimism there, doc. No, there, ha- there has to be an end somewhere for this. There, you know what? Yes, there, there is, there has to be an end somewhere. I mean, I joke with, uh, joke with my family and with my husband, like, Hey, well, maybe, in, you know, later in 2022, like it'll be okay to travel internationally. Maybe our kids will all be vaccinated by then. And like, there, there is that optimism. And, and yes, at some point this has to end, like this will not go on forever. Yeah. We know that, um, you know, we've seen previous pandemics and how they evolve and this certainly will evolve in some way. And, eventually become endemic we are nowhere near there yet um but there is i i have to keep my eye on the prize right otherwise how else are we gonna (laughs) continue to function and how else am i going to continue to go to work every day i just um i i keep believing that at some point it'll be the last wave and we can just move on yeah uh, we're all hoping that Uh, doc i can't thank you enough for all the time you've given us uh and the insight and and the on the ground uh reporting i appreciate it so much and uh we're all we're all hoping that the end is in sight, especially for uh, those of you on the front lines. But thank you so much for all you do. Thank you, Shay. Take care. You bet. Thanks very much, Dr. Mathani. That's Dr. Shazma Mathani. Uh, she's an ER doc, Royal Alec in Edmonton. She's been there. You want to talk front lines? That's what they are. That's who it is, uh, working in that ER day after day, night after night. Let's chat now with Dr. Raywat Dianandan, who is an epidemiologist and associate professor at the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. For an epidemiologist and somebody immersed in this, I'm wondering when we hear an announcement like this from the province saying, we'll give you the estimated numbers, we're not going to have the update today. There's a lot of people that get very concerned um, that we don't have the information. How accurate is this information anyway, in terms of the testing that we're doing and the changes around testing protocols? How much stock are you putting into these daily case count updates? Right. So testing across the country is pretty much broken. Yeah. People can't get PCR tests. Um, so we look at a test positivity rate instead. Now, I haven't looked at the Alberta uh, data recently, but it's pretty high in most oh, parts 30%. of the country. So 30%. Well, then we're multiplying whatever cases we have by by five or so, you know, to get the actual number of, of people infected. So we're at the point where we can't rely upon the case data to get a true handle on the magnitude of the wave, but we can look at the test positivity rate, the um, hospitalization rate, and anecdotal evidence to get a sense that the wave has just begun. When the test positivity rate sort of is stable for a number of days, then we can assume that that's when we peaked. Okay. Um, when we take a look at what's going on with the positivity rate, um, how does that factor work? Because like in Alberta right now, the only people that are getting PCR tested are people who are in you know the more at-risk categories. For example, if I um, had symptoms and I tested positive on my home rapid antigen test, that's the end of it. I'm positive, stay home. Um, so I don't even get factored in. So how accurate is that positivity and why is it something that you can rely on in terms of gauging where we are? Well, you can't rely on any of this stuff. It's all a kind of hand-waving arguments at this point. That's just the official number we have. It's yeah. a positivity rate, so right. we do the best we can with it. It would be great if there was a centralized registry where citizens could report their rapid antigen test results. Even that wouldn't be perfect because people will 
abuse the system and report fake data. We do the best that we can. The only solid data we have going forward, frankly, is hospitalization right. data, and that's not going to be sufficient. Um, so uh, going forward, we're going to have to rely increasingly on modeling. Um, so when we take a look at that, like you say, the one that can't, I mean, there, there's no debating it. If you're in the hospital, you're in the hospital. That's a confirmed case. If you're not, you're not. Um, so that's a pretty solid number. Um, and that one, I think, is the one that people are starting to say is more important. And is that one that we should be focused on as we go through whatever we're going to go through in the next week or month or whatever? Yeah, that's a discussion that the um, clinicians are having. I don't agree that it's the primary thing we should focus on. Uh, it depends on our goal. If our goal is to preserve the healthcare system, then yeah, we, it matters how full the hospitals are. But that's not our only goal. Our goal is also to manage the extent of the wave. Are we going up? Are we going down? Are we stabilized? So we need case data for that. Also, if you're like me and have an unvaccinated small child at home, you want to know exactly how much into the community transmission has reached so you know the risk of facing your unvaccinated child. So all this information is important. Uh, and we're sort of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks and what we can use to, to better manage the information flow. And you mentioned anecdotal. And um, that one is really interesting because as we see more and more of this coming out, uh, there's reason for optimism, but how much optimism is a question. I'm sure you saw the study out of Ontario, your province this morning, saying that it looks like it's 54% less um, severe. The the chances of severe illness with Omicron appear to be 54% less than they were with Delta. Um, That's positive, obviously, but it's not enough, is it? Yeah, the devil's in the details. So, yeah, that's good news, but it's still more severe than the original Wuhan strain that shut down society in 2020. So we're not in the other woods there. And also, the reason it's less severe is because we have so much vaccination. So Omicron is more likely to result in breakthrough infections. So a greater share of vaccinated people is what's lowering the severity. We still have a large number of unvaccinated people, and it's going to rip through that population. The other uh, shoe that's going to fall is the hyper-contagiousness. So if the yes. hospitalization rate is small, as it is, it's, it's actually much smaller than the Delta one was, it doesn't matter if enough people get infected all at once, that tiny fraction of a large number is going to be a large number. So that's why we're bracing for an assault on the hospital system. It's so contagious that, that an extraordinary number of people are going to get uh, infected, therefore an extraordinary number of people although a small proportion, are going to be hospitalized. Yeah, and there's a study out of South Africa today, and like you say, this is all anecdotal and doesn't translate, but just for example, in wave two, um, they said in the first month of each wave, beta, 41,000 cases, wave three, delta, 33,000, wave four, Omicron, 133,000 cases in Guateng province in South Africa. So, I mean, it's at orders of magnitude different level of contagiousness. It really is. And I've seen modeling out of the IHME, the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, suggesting that Canada will see 200,000 cases per day sometime in February. That's a pretty high peak. Mm-hmm. You know, that's shocking to hear right now, but that's entirely in the cards. The, the, the good news is that um, most of those would be very, very mild, absolutely. Um, uh, vaccination works, but also that the higher the peak, the shorter the wave. Right. So it'll be done in weeks, not months. So we just have to uh, endure the intensity of that wave for a few weeks. Yeah, what are you looking at? I mean, and I, again, we're, we're just spitballing here. We're speculating in a lot of cases, but based on what we've seen in other parts of the world, uh, the, the, the wave, the so-called wave, seemed to be extremely short, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, now, the higher the wave, the shorter it's going to be likely. But we kind of want to 
make it less high and a little bit wider, ironically, because the higher it goes, the greater threat it is to our healthcare system. So uh, ideally, um, we shorten it and extend it to manage the cases. Um, I don't think we'll be able to do that. This thing is so incredibly contagious. It's going to burn through our population pretty fast. South Africa, their spike was early, and uh, they came down pretty fast. Um, the UK is still seeing a surge in cases, as is the USA. So the rich parts of the world um, are experiencing the wave right now and are still climbing to a peak. What causes that peak to be reached and then the cases to drop off so quickly? Is it just that the virus has managed to target everybody available within that population? That's exactly right. This is all about susceptible people. Who's susceptible? So in the past, the, um, the waves come down because people's behavior changes. Sure. You hide inside, you put on your mask or whatever, and it can't get you anymore. Um, uh, now it's going to just run out of people to infect. Uh, and hopefully there's sufficient immunity after that, that there won't be waves after that. So that's, we cross our fingers that this is the last great battle of COVID. Right. And then uh, in the spring comes no more waves. That's the question I wanted to ask you when we talk. I mean, a lot of people say, hey, you know how the Spanish flu ended? It came a more uh, infectious variant that was uh, less severe came out and sort of became the established one. And then we ended up with the flu that we typically get. What has to happen for Omicron to be that um, I don't want to call it a silver bullet, but you know what I mean, the yeah. thing that takes us to that next stage. Yeah, I mean, you kind of described it. A few things have to happen. It has to be hypercontagious as it is. It has to be less severe. It's less severe, not as much less severe as I'd like to see. I'd like to see it completely, you know, uh, defanged in every yeah, way possible. Yeah. And it has to render sufficient immunity lasting a very long time. That's yet to be seen. Coronaviruses in general don't render a lot of immunity. The common cold is a coronavirus and you get reinfected all the time, right? So um, a lot of things are, are unknown still. Um, I think with a combination of vaccination, sufficient population immunity, and ongoing public health controls, we can tame this beast sometime in 2022. It's not going away, yeah. but it won't be part of our headlines after the summer of 2022, I think, I hope. I really agree. Yeah, we all hope and pray. Uh, <laughs> a good question here from Gina. And um, with all of these cases, you know, if you're talking about 200,000 cases uh, a day in Canada, and, you know, they're talking about maybe a million a day in the United States, r- ridiculously high numbers, does that increase the odds of more variants emerging because there's so many cases out there? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Now, um, a leading theory of how variants arise is that they tend to infect a handful of immunocompromised people who have chronic infection for a period of months, and the virus gets to try out new things, and that's how the new variants come out. Now, in in these rich countries, we tend not to have as many immunocompromised people as vulnerable. So the opportunity for lengthy chronic infection is reduced. And hopefully, if you have someone with a lengthy chronic infection, we have more tools in the hospitals to treat them and, and lower the infection rate so that they are less likely to become variant farms. It's always possible. It's always possible, but I think um, the probability is low for the reasons I just described, and also because I think the the wave will be over faster, and so there isn't enough uh, as much time for the, the virus to to achieve such mutation. Okay, last one. How long do we have to wait? We're all being told hey, you got to be. We've got to see how this plays out. We can't get ahead of ourselves. We don't know exactly what this wave means. How long it's going to be? What's the timeline you've set? When do you think you'll have a better picture based on what we're seeing uh, unfold across our country to say, okay, this is the situation that we're in? End of January. And I say that because the modeling suggests end of January or early February is the peak. And I think uh, it's probably going to peak sometime in January. And then we'll see, are we on the downslope? If we are, hey, maybe we're done with this thing. 
Um, if we're not, then we're buckling for a few more weeks. Okay. So we, we can, I mean, we've done two years. We can do a month, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay. Thank you, Doc. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.